The Sundance Epic Lip Upgrade improved access to drain, alleviated pressure off the other lifts, including the Bluebird, while also increasing the uphill capacity by 70%. You know, it took people a little while to actually realize that it was there. You could go over to Sundance and you could literally ski on most mm -hmm. days, and then you could just lap it. It changed the dynamic of the ski resort. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Today we get back to one of the epicenters of American skiing and one of my personal favorite places in the world, Vermont. Before we get there, please do me a favor. Visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There you will find an article that accompanies this and every podcast that provides loads of additional context on our conversation, among many, many other things. Look, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift-served skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. And you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Mount Snow, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the U.S. and Canada, Profile Search International finds and negotiates with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at ProfileSearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's ProfileSearch.com. Episode 141. Brian Suhados, General Manager of Mount Snow, Vermont. What do you do when you are the closest big Vermont ski resort to New York City and your parent company sells a discount season pass? How do you manage the volume? How do you keep the skiers happy and the crowds under control while still welcoming as many people as possible to the hill? That's the puzzle Mount Snow has been trying to piece together ever since it joined Vail Resort's lineup in 2019. There's been a lot of change since then. Some of it, like COVID, was beyond anyone's control. Other pieces, like a paid parking program introduced in 2021, have been harder for longtime Mount Snow skiers to digest. And some, like the two new high-speed lifts that Vail dropped on the bump last summer, have been absolute grand slams. That all takes us to today, where Mount Snow is settling into its place in Vail Resort's ecosystem. The mountain, remember, was once the crown jewel of the Peak Resort's empire. Now, it's one of three Vail Resort's properties in Vermont alone, alongside the venerable Stowe and uber-busy Okemo, and one of seven that the company owns in New England. And that whole region arguably feeds Vail's monster western network, which includes the two largest ski areas in North America, in Whistler and Park City, along with Vail Mountain, Heavenly, Breck, and many, many more. So what is Mount Snow entering its fifth season as a Vail Resort? Where does it fit into the broader Vail and Epic Pass portfolios? Is it still a work in progress or have we settled into a version of Mount Snow that is going to work both for Vail and for the skiers who love it over the long term? Let's discuss. My guest today is General Manager of Mount Snow, Vermont. He also oversees Aditash and Wildcat, New Hampshire. Mount Snow covers 601 acres on a 1,700-foot vertical drop served by 19 lifts. The mountain is one of three Vermont ski areas owned by Vail Resorts and one of 41 ski areas 
that the company owns across North America and Europe prior to taking the top job at Mount Snow in 2022. He spent two years as vice president of mountain operations at Vail Mountain in Colorado and more than 28 years at Park City, Utah. Brian Suhados is my guest. Brian, welcome to the storm. So glad to have you. How is everything today up in Vermont? Hey, Stuart. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure getting to chat with you today. And uh, it's an actual sunny day up here in Vermont, which is really nice for us. Being new to Mount Snow, and it's uh, it's been a great experience, part of this team. And now I'm, I'm excited to be overseeing uh, leadership at Adatash and Wildcat in New Hampshire. Let's get going, man. <laughs> Before we get going, how bad did I massacre your last name? It, uh, it wasn't <laughs> the worst, Stuart, but... Uh, <laughs> When you have a last name like mine, it gets massacred all the time. It's actually pronounced Suedos. Suedos. Okay, got it. All right, noted. All right, Brian, let's get right into this. You know, it's a sunny day up in Vermont, and that's probably really welcome after the weather that you've been having lately. Last week, a really powerful storm swept through New England, and Vermont got the worst of it. It seems as though your colleagues up at Okemo really got hit hard. How did that storm hit Mount Snow? Did you take any material damage? You know, Mount Snow got dirted, I would say, from the meat of the storm. So we had minimal damage here from the storm. But most importantly, our team members are all okay. We didn't have to make any operational adjustments. We're just concentrating our efforts and resources on assisting those in the region from staff and neighbors. You know, our thoughts go out to all those affected throughout Vermont. You know, you mentioned Okemo. Okemo and Stowe did see damage. And we're mm -hmm. grateful for our teams across Vermont who quick to respond to mitigate any potential issues. We have team members up there right now, up at Okemo, to help uh, rebuild roads and help with the cleanup efforts right now. So I'm excited that our employees could get up there and help. And, you know, we're one team here and it's just important and got to help when people need it. You know, that echoes a lot of what I recently hosted your colleague, Tom Fortune, on the podcast. And what you're saying echoes a lot of what he said when the Vail Resorts out in Tahoe were dealing with the Caldor fire a few years ago. And Heavenly and Kirkwood were both threatened by that fire. And they were able to move a base of operations north up to North Star. Just talk a little bit about the density of that Vail network and what an advantage is to be able to lean on your colleagues when some sort of natural disaster like this hits and you need a little more help in one place. And luckily, you can call in reinforcements from nearby. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I call that steward team aspect of it. And we're always out to help each other. That's what mm -hmm. makes us stronger. And given the issue up at Okemo, and we sent a tracko up there, a loader and, and people up there to help, because I know that they would do that if it was down here. And that's the biggest piece of it. Like if we were having the issue and they weren't, they'd be right here helping us go through the same thing. So there's quite a few scariest in Vermont and one of your neighbors that is not too far away, Magic Mountain and the nearby Londonderry seem to be right there in the Okemo layer of, of really getting hit hard. Has Magic reached out to you for any assistance and, and have any of your other neighbors who are not Vail Resorts? You know, I haven't heard from any other neighbors. I did see the photos from Magic Online and they took a big hit up there as well. And, you know, if they did reach out, we would uh, be willing to help them as well. I mean, you know, the ski industry is small and you got to keep your friends close to you. And, you know, anything that we could do to help another ski resort, I think we would do that. You know, Brian, I, I realize this is not directly under your supervision as a general manager of Mount Snow, but Vail has this really great Epic Promise Foundation. And essentially, from my understanding, what this does is it sets aside funds for employees who need assistance above and beyond what would be considered normal expenses. So things like they have a house fire or they have an illness. And I think that when we're seeing some of this damage, like we're seeing across Vermont, where people are losing their cars and in some cases losing their homes, this would be an opportunity for the Epic Promise Foundation to help out. Are you plugged in at all to whether any employees have had to tap this or can you talk in general about this program and, and what it's meant for and how it might help out in a situation like this? Yeah, thanks for that, Stuart. You know, our, our employees are always our uh, top focus, making sure everyone's safe and supported. And, and we've been in close contact with, with our teams. And we have made sure that grants through our Epic Promise Employee Foundation are available to provide assistance to those who may have faced property damage or extraordinary expenses due to the storm. I can't say uh, who has reached out or how many people have reached out, but it's a great foundation that we pay into as employees to help fellow employees. And I think that's the key point here. So as you look ahead to 
the coming ski season and you know considering your supervision of mount snow and also Adatash and wildcat curious if any of the rain damaged reached up to those northern resorts and if you anticipate any sort of impacts that might bleed into the 2023 to 24 ski season yeah as of right now nothing's going to bleed into next ski season the minimal damage we had here we're taking care of right now up in new hampshire they saw kind of minimal impacts of the storm yes they took in a lot of rain just like everybody else but the mountains up there are actually held in really good shape similar to Mount Snow. Great to hear. All right, Brian, let's zoom out here and focus on the 2022 to 23 ski season. It was, by all accounts, a terrific season. The NSAA, the National Skiers Association, reported record skier visits in the United States. Those were up 6% over the 2021 to 22 ski season. Ski Vermont reported a 9% increase over the previous season, specifically among Vermont skiers, which is really impressive considering the winter we had. How was the 2022 to 23 ski season at Mount Snow? You know, since it's in our rear view mirror for I don't know how many months now, like you get a lot of time to reflect on actually how the season went. Because when you're in the middle of it, you're just in the middle of it. So after I reflect back, you know, we had a great season here. Cold temps took their sweet time arriving. But when they did, we wasted no time firing up the, the east most powerful snowmaking system and expanded quickly. You know, we're, we're well known for two things, our snowmaking system and our Corinthia Parks, and both delivered last season. I want to linger on this stat for a moment, Brian. We had this storm. I don't have the exact date in front of me, but it was sometime in the first half of March. And I skied Bromley on this day, and they got about three feet. I looked at the snow report. Mount Snow had gotten something like 45 or 48 inches of snow from this storm. You must have thought for a minute you were back in Utah. What was that like to deal with in Vermont? It was interesting, Stuart. Um, <laughs> we got 48 inches of snow in 30 hours. Um, Unbelievable. It definitely created some issues for our employees trying to get to work, myself included. I had to get picked up and dropped off for two days. Uh, I still need to find a new plow person for my house. I'm working on that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we saw it coming. It didn't pop up on us. We had some very thorough plans on how we were going to deal with the storm and, and trying to get extra bodies in because you got to dig out the lifts. And, and people out west, you know, this happens out there. But back in the east, like this is an anomaly, I would say, this type of amount of snow in this short period of time. But, you know, the way the team planned this out and had all forces ready, I couldn't have been more proud on how we got through that time. And, and that snow in general, like that 48 inches, that was able to carry us all the way into April for the closing day, which was great. How much fun was that? I mean, what was the energy like on the mountain when your pass holders showed up and they had four feet of snow to play in? I mean, this is something we just don't get that often in the East. I would say the stoke level was pretty high. If you've never skied in three, four feet of powder, it can be very <laughs> challenging. But people, the smiles, the laughter, the fun, it was crazy. It was just a great piece of the season that I'll look back on and be like, wow, that was crazy. <laughs> So I have this great video. So two years ago in April, it was April 15th, 2021. And we had this really light March and there was no snow at all. And out of nowhere, this weird freak storm materialized in the middle of April and dumped two feet on Mount Snow. So of course I drove up and there were only a few runs open and it was only nitro and we're skiing all day, skiing all day. And they had been shutting the mountain down. And finally, about one o'clock, they opened up that run right next to Nitro, that's lookers left off the lift. And it was just all these East Coast skiers just bombing through two feet of powder. And like you said, they're not exactly used to it, but they were having so much fun and the energy level was so high, but it was pretty funny to see suddenly a bunch of East Coast park skiers try to deal with that kind of snow. That's a great story. And I think you explained it well, like what it's like to ski in two feet of powder. <laughs> and uh, again, it goes back to like, if you don't do it a lot, it's hard to where you keep your balance on your skis, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you got to have enough speed to get through the two feet of snow to make good turns. And, uh, you know, you got to go straight fall line. Yeah. Right? That's just, that's just the way it is. And, you know, everybody at the end of the day, they're going to go back to their house or back to the bar and be like, yeah, I just ripped up that two feet of powder. Best <laughs> ski day of my life. Yeah, they go legend with that. You know, I, like I said, I, I went up to Bromley that day, which is uh, just a little bit northwest of you, but in your neighborhood, and they got a lot of snow. And they opened the summit lift for us, and they hadn't opened it the previous day, and they had three feet. Now, I've skied plenty in Utah, and, and I know what a foot even or two feet feels like in Utah. This was a lot different. It really set up a lot different, and you were really only getting about eight inches of powder, right? The rest had kind of settled down low. 
So as someone who worked in Utah for a long time in Colorado, just talk a little bit about how that storm, that four feet that you got in Mount Snow, set up a little bit different than it may have if you'd gotten a similar volume of snow out west. Yeah, the density of the snow is definitely higher back here on the east, so it's a little thicker. And it makes it harder to ski. It's, it's more shoveling, like, you know, Utah powder is Utah powder. But the snow that we got, that four feet, it wasn't as thick as I was thinking it was going to be, which actually helped us out. But still, trying to navigate any ski resort with 48 inches of snow in 30 hours is a challenge, right? And, like, yeah. every day it gets a little better. You continue to open up more terrain, more lifts. But right in the heat of the battle, you're just trying to get stuff open to get people up on the hill to help pack it down, to be honest with you. Did you try to groom much of that? Because it's, you know, most of Mount Snow is intermediate terrain, not not very steep angle. And I would imagine that it's slow going to get that chopped up in powder. Did you try to groom it out or did you wait for the skiers to chop it up and pack it down a little bit? Now, we were out there all night packing it down, grooming it, but it was coming down so hard that you make one pass up for the snowcat, you come down <laughs> the pass right next to it, and your pass is gone. So we actually were grooming, but people, you know, the perception is probably that we didn't groom anything. But, you know, <laughs> we, we groom. That's what we do every night. Did, did you go out there and get a few turns yourself in powder? I got out there for uh, one run. I think it was more important continuing to try to get stuff open than for yeah. myself to go out there and actually try to ski some powder. Cause you know, I've been in the industry for 30 years, give or take. I've had a lot of powder days that have been great. So for me, it was more about having the operation getting going and having stuff open for our guests to ski. So that was a lot of fun. And that March storm kind of saved the season for a lot of Northeast ski areas, you know, looking more broadly, it's 2022 to 23 ski season, Brian, Mount Snow made three really cool lift upgrades. And I want to go through these one by one. So the, the first was the Sundance Express six-pack, which replaced two old triples, Tumbleweed and Sundance. Then Sunbrook was upgraded from a fixed-grip quad to a high-speed quad. And then this one didn't really get a lot of attention, but you actually swapped out heavy metal, the chairs, from double to triple chairs. So let's talk about each of these, starting with Sundance. So I think Sundance, the goal here, Brian, and, and this was this is me sort of projecting, and and this is what I think you wanted to achieve with this was that it would pull skiers away from Bluebird Express because from the minute they put up Bluebird Express, and I think it was 2011, skiers have gone there and only there, and everything else you can ski right on, and Bluebird was jammed all day. So was Sundance successful in pulling skiers away from Bluebird and spreading them out around the mountain a little bit better? I would say yes, for sure, Stuart. The Sundance Epic Lift upgrade improved access to drain, alleviated pressure off the other lifts, including the Bluebird in mm -hmm. the main base, while also increasing the uphill capacity by 70%. You know, it took people a little while to actually realize that it was there. And mm -hmm. I know that sounds a little crazy, but you could go over to Sundance and you could literally ski on most mm -hmm. days. And then you could just lap it. It changed the dynamic of the ski resort without a doubt and i think as we come into this winter and people are more in tune to that lift and not coming back to the bluebird and waiting in line here where you can just ski on and go enjoy some just amazing skiing and with that we did add some snowmaking that past summer as well on the shooting star high traverse and hop which uh, again had, had a big impact on the lift upgrades as well did the skiers finally discover sundance toward the end of the season yeah, for sure. There's a parking lot right there. There's a base lot right at the bottom of it. It's where people start going first now, instead of coming to main base or maybe over to Bluebird or, you know, you can start your day over there and it's a really easy access. It's a great lift. Yeah, it, it was a huge win for us. I'll just say that. So Bluebird has a little bit of a dazzle factor to it. It's a really beautiful lift. It has these blue bubbles and, you know, that makes it stand out from its neighbors. You know, it, it runs on the exact same line as the Grand Summit Express, which is right next door, but people just want to ride the Bluebird because it has that wow factor. Vail elected not to put bubbles on the Sundance Express. And, and I, actually, it's been years since Vail did put bubbles on any lift. And I appreciate the Sundance was planned and installed prior to your tenure, but what can you tell us about the decision not to put bubbles on Sundance? Yeah, we just, we didn't feel that it was actually necessary given the location and the condition and where that lift kind of lands. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't go all the way to the top of the mountain. It, it comes up short of the top of the bluebird. So it doesn't get the same kind of wind effect. And just given the lift, the location, we just didn't feel that the bubbles were actually necessary. So if you look at the front side of Mount Snow, you have now Sundance Express Sixer, Bluebird Express Sixer, Grand Summit Express Quad, and Canyon Express Quad. That's 18 high-speed out-of-base seats. Did Sundance impact how much you ran 
Grand Summit or Canyon or on busy days, were you spinning all four of those things? On busy days, we spin all four. And I would say three of the four, Canyon, Bluebird, and Sundance, they go seven days a week. The Grand Summit lift pretty much stayed on its normal schedule, which is mm-hmm. basically we run it on weekends and holiday periods. And we kept that schedule. And, you know, we, we monitor lift lines all day and, and we're always making adjustments to our schedule to try to create the best experience that we can for our guests. And that's one that we looked at. And the, the Sundance, actually, that lift helped take people from the Bluebird or from Grand Summit to experience new lift. And again, that's just another big win on that Sundance lift. So Mount Snow, along with its bigger neighbors in the region, so I'm talking about Stratton, Okemo, Killington, have always been, you know, when you're going in there on a weekend or a holiday, that you're in for some lift lines, you're in for some waiting. And that's just the reality of skiing central to southern Vermont on a weekend or holiday. I'm curious, though, with the addition of Sundance, like I said, 18 out of base high speed seats, what were lift lines like on peak days at Mount Snow this season? I did ski at Mount Snow this season, this past season, but not on a busy day. It was, it was sort of an off and a rainy day. But overall, what's your impression? Did Sundance kind of fix it or is the reality you're always going to have to deal with some lines in southern Vermont on a peak day? Since it was only my first year here, Stuart, I can only tell you what I saw. On busy days, yes, we had some pretty busy mazes, but there's opportunities at Mount Snow to work around the mountain and to ski the new Sundance or to ski the new Sunbrook or go over to the North Face and, and, and not come right back to the Bluebird. And that, in my opinion, is where, like, if I was coming here and going skiing on a Saturday, I would do all those other lifts before I went to the Bluebird. But that's Mm -hmm. me. There are ways to navigate this mountain to where you don't have to wait in lines. And there's people here that do it and they love it. And they know exactly where to go and what time to go. And we're fans of them because they're out front. So you mentioned the Sunbrook lift. Let's focus on that one for a minute. So the old Sunbrook quad was, as I mentioned, fixed quad, took around 14 minutes. It climbs 910 vertical feet. The new lift, I believe, is around a four minute runtime. And the hope here was, okay, you upgrade that backside. And for the listeners, Sunbrook sits on the backside of Mount Snow, and the trail map is on this article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But the hope is that having a better lift on the backside would draw skiers back there. Did that in fact happen, Brian? What was the impact of the Sunbrook upgrade on Mount Snow? First off, it was the uh, fourth most utilized lift on the mountain. Oh, wow. So people found it. What's one and two and three? Bluebird, Sundance, Canyon. Yeah, and the addition to adding snowmaking onto uh, Shooting Star. So if you got off the Sundance lift, you can go right across John and down Shooting Star mm-hmm. and get yourself into that pod. And then people could lap that pod more because a 14-minute ride is probably not that appealing to people, but a six-minute ride is very mm-hmm. appealing. So it kind of changed the dynamic of the mountain over in that pod itself. So the goal was to keep more people over there for a longer period of time. And we believe we did that. It's a great lift. It's got an amazing view at the top of it. You know, I'll say this too. I'll just plug in for my employees. The, the amount of effort that the team here went into installing those two lifts was phenomenal. It's a Herculean effort and everybody pitched in and we had everything up and running by Christmas and felt really good about how it all landed. So let's talk about that those installs for a minute here because Sundance is right at the base of the mountain and, and it obviously comes right up from a major highway, but Sunbrook actually sits at the backside of the mountain and there's no paved roads going back there. Talk about a little bit about the effort of just getting all that machinery back into Sunbrook to install a high-speed quad. Yeah, it took a lot of effort. The road itself, getting to the bottom of Sunbrook and even the top of Sunbrook are in really good shape. You know, that's a big benefit as you're trying to haul terminals and all this stuff up the hill. And, you know, we flew all the towers in, we flew all the concrete in. Uh, we poured the top and bottom for trucks, but all the tower locations were flown in. You know, any lift replacement that I've ever been involved with, it's amazing to me how we can get so much done in a short period of time in three months. Build this amazing either two lifts like we did here at Mount Snow or one lift. It takes a lot of effort from everybody involved. And we were fortunate with some contractors we had and they hauled all the equipment up and yeah, it took a lot. It's a lot of work. <laughs> so the roads, are the roads just... The green runs on the front side, Long John and Deer Run, or their actual Forest Service roads that you took up through the back? No, we came up uh, the front side. So either we come through the bottom of Corinthia or we can come right through the bottom of Sundance. You know, they're mountain roads, so you just have to have the right equipment to haul all the gear up there. And that whole aspect of the project went extremely smooth. It's amazing. I mean, is it stressful at all? Did you did you have any any hiccups with getting those big trucks up the mountain or did you just prepare the road and they were able to sail right up? 
Yeah, it was really just the preparation of the road. Oh, I got here in, I think it was June that summer. Mm-hmm. Like the old lifts are already been taken out. You know, we got a really early start on the construction season, which definitely helps as you get towards the tail end of it, because you know what's going to happen at the end. You're going to run into weather issues and snow and all kinds of things that could delay it. So the fact that we got out in front of this and like got started early helped us on the back end for sure. All right, let's talk about the heavy metal upgrade here, Brian. As I said, this one didn't get a lot of attention. It wasn't part of the Epic lift upgrade, but it was a double chair and now it's a triple chair. So what did it take to make that a triple chair? Was it a matter of just swapping out the chairs or were there some machine upgrades you had to make as well? You know, we didn't have to make any uh, machine upgrades. We really just swapped the chairs out. We did a full load test on it. We had full sign off from the tram board. So, you know, we checked all the boxes and making a double and a triple did exactly what we hoped it would. It improved the uphill capacity, made for better flow, quicker lines and maze. And also it was a plus we were able to uh, upcycle the chairs, which was a win for our Epic Promise commitments, both in terms of reducing waste and raising funds for the Epic Promise Employee Foundation and local community organizations through our uh, chair auction. In, in the case of the Epic Lift Upgrade, we had two local uh, organizations, Food for Kids and the Deerfield mm-hmm. Rally the Rescue Squad received a donation. Mm-hmm. Given recent events, you know, we're actually seeing that the effects of our contribution, a portion of the funds we added to the Epic Promise Employee Foundation are being utilized to support both teams in Ludlow and in Stowe in the wake of the flood. So, you know, we feel good about heavy metal. Uh, it was one of those kind of, if you knew about it, you knew about it. If you didn't, you didn't. But it definitely had an impact on that lift for sure. You know, I I think it's really cool, this tradition that the ski industry has adopted of selling old chairs from chairlifts and then donating that money. And that's great. I am curious about a lift like Sunbrook, right? It was not that old of a lift. It was a 1990 C-Tech quad in good shape. Probably would have been a great lift for a smaller ski area to purchase from Vail for probably more than you could have sold the chairs for and reused. Do you have any insight, Brian, into why Vail doesn't usually sell full lifts. They sell the chairs instead, just to individuals rather than repurposing that lift to a smaller ski area. Yeah, I mean, we do do that uh, at certain times, Stuart. We actually did it at Park City many years ago. We moved the King Kong lift over to the Moda lift. So we upgraded a fixed grip quad to a detached. But yeah, th- those conversations are always going along here. And if we have a piece of equipment that's better utilized at a different resort than we own, we're more than happy to like take that asset and place it over there. Those conversations are, are uh, happening all the time. So back to heavy metal, this is an interesting lift. It's a fixed grip triple. Uh, fairly old lift, and it runs right next to a high-speed quad, Nitro Express. I'm, I'm curious about how you arrived at the conversation to upgrade heavy metal. It, thinking long-term here, kind of what makes sense for this pod? Does it make sense to have a high-speed next to a fixed grip? Could you take out both and put in a six-pack? What's the long-term thinking on Corinthia about the best way to keep moving skiers uphill? Presently, we have no plans to remove heavy metal. It actually makes up for a great back up to the nitro mm-hmm. in case we have an icing event or some type of mechanical problem because it still gets you to train parks it still mm-hmm. gets you to where you need to go it takes you to maybe a smaller park but provides an easy access to the main base for beginner skiers so together those lifts actually function well is nitro on the list someday to get replaced yeah it is but i'm not sure where on the list it currently sits and do you think that when it is time is that conversation just another high-speed quad? Is there a, a world in which that becomes a six and that's the only lift over there? Or it sounds like you like that redundancy. I like the redundancy personally. And if I was going to replace that nitro lift tomorrow, I would replace it with a high-speed quad. But mm-hmm. we could probably up the uh, people per hour on it. That'll actually help reduce the maze time. Is there a reason you can't upgrade, just add more chairs to the Nitro Express as it stands? Uh, we can. We've been in discussions a little bit internally as we try to discuss that and what makes sense for that lift. So it's it's an ongoing conversation, I would say. The nitro gets busy, but it's it doesn't get to a point where it gets too busy. You know, the, the flow on that lift is really good and the lift doesn't stop that much. Part of that is all the park uh, stuff that's over there and the kids mm-hmm. or the, you know, the adults who go over there and ride park. They're efficient riders and they do really well. So the lift doesn't stop much. It's constantly moving. And we don't see the same issue over there maze-wise as we do on mm-hmm. other parts of the mountain. All right. Shifting out into the parking lot. This was Mount Snow's second season with a paid parking program. These programs, I understand the utility of them. I think that they can be hard to accept for longtime skiers. So with two years behind you of paid parking at at, uh, Mount Snow, what's working? What have you had to change? Is it where you want it to be, that program? 
Yeah, I would say the noise around paid parking has calmed down, seeing that we just came into our second season with it. People realize that the plan worked in reducing congestion. You know, we still have plenty of options available, including free options. It's not a one-size-fits-all plan. I will say that when people are coming to the resort, they're already making the decision if they want to pay or not pay. If you want to not pay, you're going to go down the bottom lot or up to the D lot. And if you're going to pay, you're going to end up pretty close to the ski resort. And just having people do that, when people come in, it it creates a scattered effect. So we're not backing up cars. The traffic has gotten so much better. There's also the misconception that paid parking is intended to be a a revenue driver, but it's not the case. Mm -hmm. It's intended to change behavior, you know, reduces traffic, streamlining the arrival and departure experience. So it's less congested. And also, uh, you know, the proceeds that we take in, a lot of them are reinvested into public transportation and including uh, the mover, Mm -hmm. which we partner with. Did you find, and maybe I'm trying to draw a relationship here that isn't necessarily real, but, you know, the first year of paid parking, it was sort of an isolation. Then the second year, you put in two new high-speed lifts and really made some effort to improve the experience, right? And to me, that matters. Like, if you're going to charge more, provide more. Did you see any connection between those two things, between upgrading Mount Snow and the noise calming down? Or do you think it was just sort of people getting used to it and saying, okay, that's a reality of life, but I still have my cheap Epic Pass. There is a free parking lot. I just have to arrive a little early and plan around it. I think it's more of the latter. You know, for me, Stuart, my my whole mindset around change and, you know, the change to paid parking, in my opinion, takes three years. It takes three years for people to like get an understanding of why it's there, what options they have. And we want people to take uh, public transit to the ski resort. There's a lot of benefits there, not just to us, but the environment itself. You know, the options that we have for free parking, if you want to park down at the bottom, you know, it's called Lot E. Mm -hmm. We run a conveyor. It's like a big magic carpet that you can hop on. It takes you right up and you're right in the middle of it. Then you can actually ski right back to your car at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a cool lift. You know, I uh, I was looking at some old Mount Snow trail maps and they used to have that. I'm sure you've seen pictures of this, that crazy spaceship like tram from the hotel up to the ski area. Do do you still have those cars or do they sell those? I think they sold those. I I, I have not seen them. Uh, I've only seen the photos of it. Whoever thought of that, that, that's impressive. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, there's some crazy cool history and crazy cool lift history with Mount Snow. All right. So, you know, Brian, as I mentioned in the intro, you spent almost three decades in Utah, Park City. You spent some time in Vail. Then you come to Vermont. I mean, New England skiing, if you haven't experienced it, it, it's impossible to explain. It's its own animal. What were your impressions of New England skiing as a guy coming from the West? I don't know if you'd ever been to New England and, and skied before that, but lay this out for us. I mean, what are your impressions of New England skiing and New England ski culture? I, I grew up skiing on the East Coast, and I'm sure we'll okay. get to that a little bit later, but mm-hmm. uh, New England ski resorts offer something for everyone. I mean, you can mm-hmm. get a more luxurious experience at Stowe or hit the super steep runs at Atapash, or heck, you could hang out at the parks over in Corinthia. For me, uh, I've been impressed with the passion of the guests in the East and that Mount Snow, you know, in general, like it's their mountain and mm-hmm. they're not afraid to give me candid feedback. You know, they're going to tell us if we're doing things right or if we're doing things wrong. And you know, we appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know, I would say the difference between the East and West is the destination factor. So like, you know, I was at Vail and Park City for a long time and, you know, you cycle guests every week. At Mount Snow, we get the same people that come back each week. But at the end of the day, like, you know, whether I'm out West or out East, you know, we're, we're just here trying to create the best experience we can for our employees and our guests. And New England is, I like it back here, honestly. The mm-hmm. weather is definitely a challenge, but that kind of drives me as well. So where did you grow up, Brian? Uh, I grew up in uh, Northern Jersey. Oh, uh, cool. I'm an East Coast uh, at heart, honestly. Nice. Uh, my family had a house up at Stowe, Vermont, since I was three. Mm-hmm. I learned to ski there. Like I went through their whole ski school program. And now for me, like it's so rewarding to be in a position where, where I can continue to offer the experience to our new skiers and riders at Mount Snow. You know, I've always viewed the East region as a, as a great place to learn and ski and ride and welcome skiers of all ages to our sport. So you grew up in North Jersey and the family would go up to Stowe. Did you ever ski Vernon Valley, Great Gorge, and now known as Mountain Creek? I did one time, and I'll date myself and tell you how long that is, Stuart, but it was a long time ago, and I barely kind of remember it. <laughs> it's it's a whole different world now. It, you know, I, I, their South Peak is the equivalent of your Corinthia, where it's just a whole peak turned over to park, and it's a lot of fun. So you grew up skiing, skiing in northern Vermont, one of, in my opinion, the best ski regions in the entire country, and, and the snow quality up there is just amazing compared to what you'll find even throughout the rest of the state of Vermont. But how did you get into into skiing as a career, Brian, what was your first job in skiing? And then how did you end up out in Utah? 
I've always had a passion for skiing. Learning how to ski up there was just a tremendous experience. And, and honestly, like I went back to Stowe this past winter and I skied there for a day. It was the first time I've skied there in 32 years. Oh, wow. And it just, it brought back like all the memories of growing up and going to Stowe and skiing like, you know, nosedive and like Perry Merrill mm -hmm. and Gondolier and just ripped around the mountain for a couple hours one morning and just like brought it all back to me. But like, how, you know, how I got in the ski industry, I moved from Jersey to Park City with three buddies. Mm -hmm. back in 1991 i think and i got a job as a snowmaker at park city mountain i've always been passionate interested in, in the science of snowmaking which translates well into my role here at mount snow with this massive snowmaking system you know to this day i still get out once a year to make snow with the team because it's, it's still a passion of mine that's where it's all started for me back then uh so take us through your park city journey you arrive in 1991 you're a snowmaker you end up staying for 28 years i mean just take us through those decades and what your journey was like and how park city changed a lot the way. It was quite a journey. I got that first job making snow and, you know, I thought I'd be there for one season like every other ski bum out there. And then I, I ended up uh, staying for another season and uh, just fell in love with the lifestyle. You know, we're so fortunate to be able to live and work outdoors and make a passion for our profession. But at Park City in general, like I worked my way up through the snowmaking, I ended up running the snowmaking department. And then I took on a uh, snow services role right before the Olympics happened in Park City, mm -hmm. where I was overseeing both grooming and snowmaking. In about 2012, I was promoted to director of mountain operations. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I still have a lot of passion for Park City. I still consider it a home to me. So 2012, you're promoted to a senior position. 2014 or 15, you can you can help me narrow down the calendar there. Vale acquires Park City from Powder Core in this sort of notorious situation where there was some you know, forgotten signatures on a lease, and 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 I won't get into all the details here. But what was it like to work at Park City during that transition from Powder Core to Vale Resorts? I don't know how else to characterize it, but sort of surprise takeover of the mountain. It was a interesting time, I would say, Stuart. The least thing was just happening all around us, and we were very involved with it. And then the next day, you know, we get word that uh, Vail has bought Park City. And, uh, you know, I'll say, as, as with any transition, there are changes to adjust to. Mm -hmm. But I've always viewed the changes and the resources available to being a part of a company like Vail Resorts. It's been a very positive experience for me. I mean, the opportunity to work with Vail Resorts was so intriguing. I, I was on board to be a part of it and see where it would take me. And here I am today, back on the East. <laughs> So take us inside this a little bit. I, I'm sure that Vail must have had to deal with the human element of this, right? Because there's the business transaction and the fact that Park City is this just glorious resort and they already owned Canyons next door and, and obviously wanted to and did connect them to create this super resort. And that makes a lot of sense for the Epic Pass and makes a lot of sense for the stock price and it makes a lot of sense for Vail Resorts. But the company must have realized that for the humans who run the resort, this was jarring and there was a lot to deal with. So take us inside. What was that like? How did Vail Resorts handle that transition? I'm proud of how they handled that. You know, we had some bumps in the road and, you know, it took a while to get this ironed out, to get the employees excited about this, try to get them on board with it. I mean, change is hard for people. Mm -hmm. And this was big change in a fast way. We misstepped along the way a couple of times, like most people would. But at the end of it, I look back at that time in my life and, uh, you know, I'm proud of what we did. And I'm mm -hmm. proud of how it all came together. And I'm proud of like where they are today. And I was just happy to be a part of it, honestly. And I think as we look back on that time, most skiers are not thinking about that at all. All they know is that Park City is on the Epic Pass and that Park City is the largest ski area in the United States. And the reason it is the largest ski area in the United States is that, as I mentioned, Vail Resorts had already purchased the Canyons, which is right next door to Park City. Formerly, I'm sure it was Park West or maybe even something else, Wolf Mountain or whatever it was when you first arrived there in 1991. But Vail very quickly connected the two sides with a gondola. And my understanding is, Brian, that you played an important role in that project. So Take us through this, the scale of this project and what it was like to work on that. Another interesting time in my career. Uh, at the time, I was the senior director of mountain operations during this project. And it was a really transformative and fascinating time in my career. It was excitement. We were doing something that most people in the ski industry never get to do, combining two large resorts into one. The magnitude of it was not lost on me. That summer, we spent uh, $50 million in capital to, uh, to connect the resorts. We installed three lifts, including the quick gondola, built a new restaurant, remodeled two others, 
installed miles of snowmaking pipe and guns to ensure we had a connection from the uh, Quicksilver Gauntlet back to the Iron Mountain Pod. There were logistical challenges and some sediment challenges around the community, and I think we treated both with equal uh, seriousness and consideration. You know, we spent a lot of time getting community feedback and listening to guests and also educating them on, on what ended up being a very well-perceived project once completed. You know, it was one of the most interesting summers of my life. It was an awesome experience, and I'm so excited about how, how it transformed the ski resort. That only happens once in your life. And uh, I feel like I took advantage. I learned a lot through that time, and it was awesome. That Quicksilver gondola is almost 8,000 feet long. It is just a massive piece of machinery. Brian, as someone who had lived and worked in Park City for a couple of decades at that point, how transformative was that Quicksilver gondola to the experience of someone who came to Ski Park City, because Park City wasn't that big before. You know, Canyons was much larger, and suddenly you put them both together, and you're talking about a mega resort. So how transformative was that experience? You know, it was it was just unbelievable, Stuart. Like, it changed how, like, you might move around a mountain to, like, the nth degree. Hopping on that Quicksilver gondola, whether you're coming from Canyon side or Park City side, it's a whole new ball game. Like, you could spend days on one side and days on the other side. Or, you know, I know people that have skied every lift in one day at Park City. And that, that's, you know, that takes a lot of Ow. effort right there. And, <laughs> it's uh, unbelievable. You want to talk about transforming a ski resort? Like, it mm-hmm. did it. And it worked. And uh, I, I couldn't be more stoked with how it turned out, honestly. You know, I was skiing around Park City a little bit last winter, and and this time what I really noticed was all this old mining equipment that's still there that's been abandoned for like 100 years. Just talk a little bit about that element of Park City and just how that ski area, because I've never seen anything like it where the ski area is interwoven with the history of a place so intimately as it is in Park City. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, the uh, silver mine history that goes on with Park City and being able to see the structures. And there's some structures that you can't see while you're skiing that you can probably only see like in the summer if you're hiking around in certain spots of the mountain. But the legacy of that just continues to be there, Mm -hmm. right? It's a part of what Park City the town is. It's a part of what Park City the ski resort is. And it's just, it's one of those cool, like old mining towns that turned into something that's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's just super neat to see that stuff. So you spend nearly three decades in Utah and you move over to Colorado. Before I get to Colorado, Brian, curious, you said you moved out to Utah with three buddies from North Jersey. Did any of them stay with you or did they all eventually end up back on the East Coast? No, there's two of them that are still in Park City. Wow. And I, I still own a house in Park City and, and nice. they live within a mile of me. Oh, that's that's wonderful. So we're, like we're all buddies. And we have the, one of the four that moved down to Florida. Uh-huh. But yeah, we're all like super close and we still get together all the time. And we talk about like what it was like to hop in a car when you're 20, 21 years old and drive across country, not really knowing where you're going to end up. We just landed in the parking lot of Park City and said, we'll try this out. That's pretty slick your boy who moved to Florida because he knows he's got a place to crash in Park City. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you moved to Colorado. I mean, after three decades in Utah, and I know Utah and Colorado have this little rivalry going. I mean, what was that like to move to Colorado after spending three decades in the powder capital of America? You know, for me, I felt like it was a point in my career that it was probably time to make a change, make a change in like trying out a different ski resort with what I've learned and what I could, what I hope that I would bring to Vail Mountain. Again, going from Park City to Vail Mountain, there's not a better route that you can go. I moved there right in the middle of COVID, which was, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a downer, but it was COVID. I left my wife and kids back in Utah because my youngest son was a uh, senior in high school. So I lived mm-hmm. the first season of Vail, I lived by myself and I would just kind of commute back and forth to Park City or, you know, the family would come out. I had a great experience at Vail Mountain. You know, one of the perks of working for Vail Resorts is the uh, career growth and the opportunities that it provides. I've always valued the ability to grow within the company and help others do the same. And I, you know, I could say, again, my time at Vail Mountain was a great experience. I value like the friendships I made and fully enjoyed the experience that Vail offered. And, you know, I stay in close touch with the team over at Vail Mountain because, you know, I got a passion for them and I got a passion for that ski resort. It's a great place. Yeah. You know, Brian, it's interesting that you mentioned that career advancement. I, so a couple things on that. Number one is, you know, I track leadership positions pretty closely and I can't think of the last time that Vail promoted a ski area general manager equivalent, COO. I know they all have different titles but that wasn't internal. And that's really interesting. And then another interesting thing is, you know, I work a lot with the more junior members of the company, the communications folks and the marketing folks and 
and they help me out with a lot of stuff and, and they're all super great and passionate and really good at what they do. And I asked them this question about whether that career advancement piece is one of the reasons they work at Vail. And universally, they say that it is because they know that there aren't dead ends and that if you want to move up, that path is available for you. Just take us inside for a little bit, Brian. And, you know, we see this from the outside and I see the outcomes, but talk a little bit about the company culture of providing opportunities for employees to be able to move up and actively encouraging them to do so and letting them know that those opportunities are there. Well, I'll start off with myself. When I joined Bell Resorts, did I ever think I'd end up where I am right now? Probably not. Maybe I wasn't, you know, I couldn't look far enough down the road at that point. But, you know, Bell Resorts, talent development is what we do. And we continue to try to build leaders because, you know, there's always a pipeline. And some of my experiences or experiences that I've had with my employees of, depending on what department you work in, sometimes you have to make a change to a different avenue right? And actually continue to try to grow. And I've seen that happen inside Bell Resorts, you know, a lot in the last five years, because there's opportunities across the board. And in Bell, we do a really good job at like providing opportunities for people. And it's up to them to take it. Everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants the next job. And you got to be driven. And we have so many of these type of people in the organization. And, you know, again, I, I can't be more proud to work for Bell Resorts. So it's one thing to move from Park City to Vail Mountain. Both have similar snowfall and similar types of snow and similar scale. It's another thing to move to Vermont, which is, you know, Mount Snow is one of the largest ski areas on the East Coast, but it's a fraction of the size of Vail or Park City. So just talk us through this, Brian. How did the opportunity come up to lead Mount Snow and what was appealing about that opportunity to you? I got a uh, phone call, I think it was back in like March or something last year, two years ago about, you know, an opportunity to come to Mount Snow. And, you know, I'd never been a general manager of a ski resort. You know, I was mm -hmm. focused on operation. That's where I came up. So there was two parts of that. It was me, you know, expanding what I'm doing and becoming a general manager, which was very intriguing to me. The other aspect is my wife and her parents and her family still live in New Jersey. And my father still lives up in Stowe, Vermont. So we kind of wanted to get back to the East Coast, spend some more time with family, yet having the opportunity to be the general manager at Mount Snow was really intriguing to me. What was that transition like for you personally, Brian? I mean, both becoming a general manager for the first time and then coming into a new place where you didn't necessarily know a lot of folks. How did you approach that as a leader to respect the work that's been done, but yet be in charge and, and be the person leading the place. How do you, how do you balance all that and, and make sure that you don't come in too strong and that you, that you're taking charge in the right way, I guess. For me, Stuart, it was, you know, I moved here early June. So I had like the summer, I didn't mm -hmm. move like right before winter. So I had the summer to make connections with people and make connections with the senior team here and try to learn as much as I could about the ski resort. And really, it was more about me just being curious, right? Yeah. Asking the curious questions and not taking that route as opposed to maybe coming in and making changes and doing things what I thought where I really needed to see what the weather was like back here, how that impacted the operation. And it also was a time for me where I had to dig deep into food and beverage and, and ski school. Mm -hmm. as I've never really been a part of those in my operations background. So I leaned in pretty heavy onto those operations because I had to learn. That and just having a curious mindset is, is really kind of what got me there. So Mount Snow is a really interesting place. I mean, in spite of the fact of being, as I said, kind of a fraction of the size of Vail or Park City, it's still a really big mountain for the East Coast. And it's an incredibly complex place. And not only do you have those 19 lifts that I referenced in the intro, but you also have and we'll talk about lifts a little more in a second, but you also have one of the largest, most complex and best, I would say, snowmaking systems probably anywhere on the planet. I mean, tell us about this system. This is a system that Peak Resorts, which owned Mount Snow before Vail Resorts, invested millions and millions and millions of dollars in. And it took them so long to get the permits for the water. And we don't need to get into that whole backstory, but just lay this out for us. Tell us about Mount Snow's snowmaking system and what makes it so good. Given my background of coming up through a snowmaking background, it was something, uh, you know, when I got here, I was just so excited to see, right? Because I knew what it could do and I knew how much water it could pump and I knew how much snow it could make. And the ability to open train earlier, our snowmaking system allows us to build a better base quickly mm -hmm. that can last well in the spring. You know, we have 250 fan guns here, a thousand low E guns and 2000 snowmaking hydrants. And to see this thing come up as, you know, it fires up in the fall and to drive in and just see the whole 
mountain like lit up with snow flying everywhere. It, it's wild. You know, I had the opportunity, the team that works on the snowmaking system that makes all the snow, like they're passionate about what they do and they know how good the system is. And the money that Peaks put into this with the Westlake and the new pump stations and the new pipe, it's a massive system that is so fun to watch and so fun to like get out and play with occasionally for myself. The biggest piece that I'll say too is like when we have weather events, the ability to resurface trails here is something that, that I've never seen before, how fast that it can happen. And like, cause you want to like resurface as fast as you can once you take a, a rain event or something along those lines. And and to see the system do what it did was just unbelievable to me. So you mentioned the that early snowmaking base helps you make it all the way into April. And Vail Resorts has done something interesting. So traditionally, Wildcat had been the late operator in Peak Resorts portfolio. And Vail Resorts, I don't know how deliberate this has been, but they've made Mount Snow their late operator, and it ends up being their last resort to close in New England, even later than Stowe, which always closes third week in April, and I think certainly could go farther if it wanted to. Jay Peak and Sugarbush always go into May. And it's interesting because if you look, Mount Snow is is further south than Okemo or Wildcat or Atitash or uh, perhaps even Sunapi. But why has Mount Snow become Vail Resort's late operator in the east in New England? Yeah, I think this just happened over the last couple of years. You know, the, the Carinthia area is that opportunity for us. So we'll ski, you know, we'll ski the main face here for as long as we can. And then we'll transition over to Carinthia. And with all the uh, terrain park snow and features, we have excess snow there that we could play with to try to keep us open. Next year, I can't remember our closing date, but it's right around the same date that we closed this year. Mm-hmm. But it, the ability with all the snow that we have over there from the parks has us the ability to stay open that late. There was a year or maybe even two where Peak Resorts opened Mount Snow in October. Could we ever see that happen with Mount Snow today? Yeah, I think if all the stars align and the size of the snowmaking system that we have here, if we get a, a stretch late October, yeah, we're going to take advantage and we're right, going to so, put as much snow up there as we can. All right. So let's focus on lifts again for a moment. I mean, obviously you just made some huge upgrades and it sounded like it made some really substantive improvements. I do have to ask about those two old Yon triples on the north north face the Challenger lift dates in 1982, Outpost turned 60 this year. Long term, what is your thinking around those two North Face lifts and potentially upgrading those? Yeah, they're on the list for sure. At least one of them is. If I had my way, the Challenger lift would be the first one to be replaced just due to where it lands at the summit. It's just better access throughout the rest of the ski resort. Yeah, and I'm leading towards Challenger for sure. But, uh, you know, the Outpost is actually like a, it's a 1988 Yon oh. C-Tech fix. Okay. Got life in it. So when you look at that configuration back there, two triple chairs running parallel, do you like that alignment long-term? Do you think that one lift over there would be good? Do you like the redundancy kind of, how would you like to see that evolve? Yeah, the redundancy to me is what I enjoy. And that's more given the icing events that could possibly happen. So if we have a detached quad replace challenger, I'd keep the outpost. And if we ever had an icing event, because you could still run a fixed grip. The de-icing is, is pretty minimal as compared to a, a detached quad. So it would still give us a, a lift to be open that day as we de-ice, say, a detachable. Do you think that a detach is what you would want to replace Challenger? That's about a 1,000 vertical feet, which is sort of borderline. Do you go detach or fixed? I would go uh, a detach, honestly, for sure. All right. How about Bear Trap? This is a double chair, dates to 1969. What sort of shape is that lift in? Yeah, it's in good shape. And the fact that we just put the new Sunbrook lift right next to the bottom of it gives us other options. It's not like two old lifts side by side anymore. The Sunbrook lift is, you know, an awesome piece of equipment and changes Bear Trap a little bit, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bear Trap is, it's interesting because it really only serves a couple trails. You kind of use it to get back up out of Sunbrook. I would imagine that you don't see a lot of lines there. Is a double chair the right chair for that? Have you considered a a sort of upgrade as you did with heavy metal, or maybe you just replaced some of the machinery and upgrade the chairs? No, I think the double chair there is kind of what needs to be there. I I wouldn't Mm -hmm. go any bigger. You know, it really just gets people out of the Sunbrook area. Plus you have that one trail right up up, up under Bear Trap. That's kind of like the mobile place. And we have music on that lift and it's it's a pretty cool vibe over there for sure. But given the, uh, the Sunbrook lift, I don't see any changes to the Bear Trap. All right, let's linger on Grand Summit for a moment. This is a really interesting lift. It's one of the few remaining Yon detachable lifts. And these lifts had a lot of problems and they were... Fatalities linked to accidents at Keystone, Whistler, and Sierra Tahoe back in the 1990s. And the Yons that remain, including this one, have been heavily upgraded and retrofit. This one was upgraded with Poma terminals and grips in 1997. So it is a safe lift and obviously is reviewed by the tramway board every year. But it does date to 1987. And 
I think the sooner we can bury these yawn lifts, probably the better. Do you think the Grand Summit is nearing the end of its usable life? And if so, what should go there instead? Because it, it runs on the exact same line pretty much as Bluebird. So I don't know if you need a detached quad there. I mean, what, do you, what what's your take on that whole area in the Grand Summit lift? Yeah, I mean, part of me wants to uh, get another year in the books with Sundance and see how the traffic moves this coming winter. And the Grand Summit, I feel like we, capital-wise, would be better off spending elsewhere, like an mm-hmm. update to the Challenger lift that I just spoke about. You know, anytime that there's plans to invest in a lift system, you know, we consider the impact that it will have on the flow and the overall guest experience. And, uh, you know, I think the Grand Summit kind of lands right there right now. And if I was going to replace it, I'd probably put a detached quad in, nothing bigger. And you think on the same line, just as redundancy for Bluebird, that that line does make sense and it's just a matter of a newer lift? Yeah, yep, exactly. All right, we've gone through most of the different lift pods. Any other upgrades that you might like to make over time, maybe to the beginner area around launch pad where you have all those carpets or or canyon or maybe in that little seasons lift? Kind of what, what's your, as you survey the rest of the mountain, is there anything else that catches your attention? Yeah, it'd be uh, both of our uh, beginner lifts. So the Seasons Lift, which is over by the bottom of Sundance, and uh, the Discovery, which is over here by uh, Launchpad, they're on the list too. You know, we're always weighing what's going to be best for the guest, right? So as we decide lift replacements down the road, like we don't have any plans to do any lifts next year, but Mm -hmm. uh, down the road, we take a lot of data insights into what's going to be best to have the greatest experience for our guests if we replace a lift. So those are interesting lifts and they're, they're not very high with a vertical, but they are fixed grip lifts, which can be a little challenging for beginners, right? And we saw it at Breckenridge, they upgraded Rips Ride, which is only a, a few hundred vertical feet, but they upgraded that to a detach last year. And the reason was that it's just easier for beginners to load on a detach. Is there a scenario where we might see a detach lift in a beginner area at Mount Snow, or does that just not make sense economically? I'd have to put a little more thought on that, Stuart. If we did that, we'd probably do it over at the Seasons area. But yeah, I think that's a little too far down the road to go down that. I mean, we did it at Park City. We replaced High Meadow with a detached quad. Saw a lot of great success with it. We're constantly talking about lift upgrades, lift changes. And again, it all comes down to the experience of the guests. And we just, that's number one. All right, Brian, let's finish up today with a talk on the Epic Pass. You know, Mount Snow is unlimited on the Epic Local Pass, and that pass debuted at just $676 this past spring. So to look at some of your neighbors who are on the Icon Pass, Stratton Unlimited for equal access, you would need a full Icon Pass, which is $1,159 at that early bird price. I'm curious... And I asked the same question of your colleague, Jody Church, out at Breckenridge, which is also on them in the Epic Local Pass. Is is Mount Snow access too cheap? Because you're dealing with a lot of crowds, as we discussed earlier. And I'm just curious, as you, as you zoom out and look at this, is the Epic Local as the unlimited pass for Mount Snow? Is that the right tier of access? And is this something that Vail Resorts continually reassesses? Because we see a lot of shifting going on. With the icon pass they're taking alta off the base pass and take deer valley off the base pass and you know they'll take crystal mountain off the unlimited tier on the icon pass and they sort of are always adjusting Vales had the same access tiers for all its mountain for years so do you think the epic local is the right pass for mount snow and how often do you talk about this internally we do think it's the right pass i mean we spend a lot of time assessing you know which pass products make sense and which level to provide the right balance of both accessibility and a great guest experience. You know, it's important to note too that uh, a significant portion of the people moving into path products are already on the mountain w- mm-hmm. with a lift ticket. Yeah. We're just making it easy for them to enjoy the benefit of purchasing ahead of the season with a pass. You know, this provides our guests with a greater pass value and more op- opportunities to ski and ride. In return, we can invest even more into the guest experience and infrastructure enhancements like high-speed lifts and snowmaking. So, you know, we feel like it's right. So one of the really cool things about Northeast skiing is most resorts offer a midweek pass and Vail jumped on this train and starting several seasons ago, started offering the Northeast midweek Epic pass, which is just a phenomenal deal. This thing's less than $400 and skiers can ride all midweek non-holidays at Mount Snow, Okemo, they get five days at Stowe and all the midweek days at all of your New Hampshire resorts, plus a bunch of others in Pennsylvania, New York, and Ohio. So how popular has this product been with your core skiers? It's popular. I'll say this too. If you're not skiing midweek, you're really missing out. Like we want to offer a pass product at the right price point for all sorts of skiers and riders and try to spread our visitation out and understand that the Northeast midweek pass is popular with those who have more flexibility Mm -hmm. into visiting off-peak times. Speaking of products, other great options we launched is 
the Epic Day Pass for skiers mm-hmm. and riders. And they can build their own pass, choosing from one to seven days. Basically, you got to commit now to ski the one to seven day and buy your Epic Day Pass on specific days and ski later. You know, at Mount Snow, for example, you can buy a one day Epic Pass right now for $80. It's an awesome value compared to lift tickets. It just mm-hmm. takes a little more pre-planning, I would say. So you did limit, for those who did not buy ahead, you did limit lift ticket sales throughout Vail Resorts portfolio this past season. How impactful was that amount of snow? Were you able to, did it end up being a good crowd control mechanism? You know, we always have days that are busier than others, especially on those unexpected powder days. You know, it all comes down to prioritizing the on-mountain experience for our guests, but, you know, limiting lift tickets, investing in new lifts and capital improvement projects. Lift ticket inventory modeling is specific to certain circumstances at each resort. It's based on a lot of things. For Mount Snow, you know, the resort team, including myself, evaluates, you know, a variety of factors in order to make those calls like available terrain, historic visitation numbers, current season visitation modeling. And there's just a lot of factors that go into this. This past season about snow, we didn't have days of limited tickets because we never reached that threshold. Mm. You know, we didn't experience any record-breaking uh, visitation days. What we're seeing is more of a spread out visitation with people visiting the resort throughout the week instead of just on peak holidays and weekends. And, that, you know, that's our goal. All right, Brian, with that, I will let you go. I really appreciate your time today. I cannot thank you enough for your insight. I wish you the best of luck with your East Coast adventure here, and hopefully you can get through the rest of the summer without too much rain. I appreciate that, Stuart. Thanks for your time today. And uh, next time you're over at Mount Snow, give me a shout. We'll take a couple of runs together. Oh, count on it for sure. That's Brian Suhados, General Manager of Mount Snow, Vermont. Nice job, Brian. Really appreciate that. Really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Epic Pass Skiers. I have several more conversations with the leaders of Vales Mountains on the docket, including Keystone, North Star, and Adatash. The very best way to get those episodes the moment they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.